to deal with fundamental issues in our relationship with God, and he's focusing in this section we're going to look at on the uh, need to love one another. So, uh, so would somebody read chapter 3, verses 11 to 18? And this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Okay. Notice how he begins in 11, for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning. You can look back at chapter 1, verse 5, you see this is kind of a structural marker. He said, this is the message we've heard from him in 1, 5. So we're sort of, this is kind of a major a break here. Here's the message. Now, why would he stress it's the message which you've heard from the beginning? Which beginning? <laughs> what is the beginning? <laughs> could be the beginning of time, since we go back to Cain and Abel. Yes. It could be the beginning of the the teachings of, of Christ. Probably more likely that. Do what? John was there at the beginning. That's true. And so I suspect the beginning of the gospel message. But why stress this is what you've heard from the beginning? He does that some other times, too. Well, it, it's not a different message. It's not one that was a different one than that was which was preached. It's the same as the message that's been preached all along. In contrast with false the false teachers, the higher levels of attainment that you can reach by going through all of these Gnostic things, and the very novelty of this teaching shows it's wrong. It doesn't fit what you've heard from the beginning. What is the time-tested, tried-and-true teaching from the very beginning? It goes all the way back to Jesus. And it is that we should love one another. That is not a peripheral command. That is the heart of the message. That's what you heard. We ought to love one another. Now, he gives a counterexample from the Bible. Who didn't love his brother? And uh, Cain becomes kind of a prototype, a model of not loving, that is, hating your brother. And why was it that Cain chose to kill Abel? Because his deeds were evil. (laughs) And Abel's were righteous. Wow! If that doesn't shed a horrifying light on the the evil capability of a human heart, you kill your brother because he's doing the right thing and you're doing the wrong thing. You know, it it shows our capacity for evil. You know, to kill your brother because of the righteousness that he did. But that's what Cain did. And that's the way Cainites are. Look at verse 13. Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Cain still hates Abel. That is, the world still hates the church. And why? Same reason. Same reason. The world's deeds are evil. God's people's deeds are good. And they hate us as a result of that. So don't be surprised when the spiritual descendants of Cain hate the children of God. It's been happening from the days of Cain and Abel right up to now. That's the way you can even recognize the world, hating others because they're righteous. Thoughts and comments through verse 13. Well, look at the connections. He said, we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Love shows life. Hatred shows death. 
The world is characterized by hatred. God's people is characterized by love. And so, he, and he proves, okay, how do you know that the one who doesn't love abides in death? Well, he who hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, now, how could he say that? You know, it, we do understand that no murderer has eternal life. That's pretty obvious. John can kind of take that for granted. But how do you know that somebody who hates his brother is a murderer? I mean, it's it's as though you you killed him already in your heart. Yes. How do you, what do you want? You want him dead. You hate him. You know, it's the same root. You know, um, would there be reasons why somebody would hate his brother and still not kill him? Yeah. Thankfully, what are some of those? The consequences. Jail. The consequences. Jail. Yes. Or you don't hate him that much. Mm, okay. <laughs> I don't want to kill people. Well, how many people do you hate? <laughs> I don't think you always have to kill hate them to the point of wanting to murder them. You just well, what would keep you from murdering them if you really hate them? They might be stronger and kill you. That's so true. There might be some <laughs> real serious consequences. You might not have the chance. You might have the, not have the means. You might not, not not have the guts. You know, you might fear people's reaction. Sometimes you'll get people whose hatred just kind of erupts, and they don't think about those things, and they do kill them. But it's it's that mentality. Why would you kill somebody if you really love them? You know. That's the, the hatred is what leads to the murder. No murderer has eternal life. Therefore, nobody that has the hatred that leads to murder has life. Hatred leads to death. So that's a that's a very strong consequence. Uh, you know, the dichotomy between hatred and love is going to death, going to life. Just two very different things. So what's the example we have of true love? Jesus. Jesus and Cain are the models in this section. And uh, Jesus shows you what love means. We actually need an explanation of what love means, of how it acts, and so forth. Because often, I think we aren't clear about that. We will just kind of assume, oh yes, I love. But we don't always know what that is. So, according to the definition here in 16 to 18, what is love? down our lives for the brother. Yeah. Being willing to sacrifice yourself for the benefit of someone else. How's that different from Cain? Just sacrifice someone else for the benefit of yourself. <laughs> exactly. It's just the opposite. That, that's precisely it. You know, Jesus sacrificed himself by love. Cain sacrificed Abel by hatred. They are, they are the opposite emotions. You know, think about the difference between taking your brother's life and giving your life for your brother. That's what Jesus did. You know, and uh, so that's really the standard. When, when we think about what does love mean, think about Jesus sacrificing himself for someone else. Now, it doesn't just show up in great incredible heroic deeds. There are simple ways it shows up too. Uh, sometimes we, uh, you know, we find it more difficult to do the daily smaller sacrifices than to imagine how we do some great gallant one if we had the opportunity. So what, what are the smaller things we need to do? Share? Yeah. You know, you see your brother in need, and you've got something to give him, and you close your heart. You know, the love of God doesn't abide in you then. You know, I mean, if you really love, you've got to love more than just humanity in general. You have to love specific, concrete people. <laughs> and it has to mean something. You know, you have to sacrifice your goods, your comfort, your pride, or whatever, to practice love. 
You don't close your heart. You open your heart and your pocketbook. And you love in, in life. You know, some people have a lot of mouth mercy. But there's not, they don't do anything. You know, and, and think about what he says in verse 17 and 18. You know, you have something, you see your brother in need, close your heart. Why would somebody do that? What would keep somebody from being generous with love, people they love? What kind of attitude is that? Materialistic. Materialistic, selfish. You know, there's a lot of people who they don't want to give up their stuff because of some what somebody else needs. Um, there, there are people who let their uh, almost their pride and and uh, you know arrogance. They don't want to get involved with people like that. You know, there are people who, who shyness. You know, they're, they're kind of afraid to, to do that. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. But, but the example of Jesus is if you love your brother, you sacrifice yourself to serve your brother in whatever way would be a blessing and a help to him. So he says, don't love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. You know, make that, make what you say about love real in what you do. Comments and thoughts in verse 18. just have to add that concrete people are hard to love. They are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I figured somebody would call my hand yeah, on that, are. so thank you for that. <laughs> I try. I did have a question. What does it mean... What does it mean to hate your brother? I mean, Tasha's, Tasha's point about... You don't hate them enough to actually kill them, and like the difference between hate and dislike, and is there a spectrum? That, uh, Probably is. There usually is. I think hatred is wishing you well toward them, wanting them not. You know, you, you don't want them to to be blessed. You want them to be hurt. You know, because that's what hatred leads you to do to them. You know, if you let it actually grow and flower. Other thoughts? How does he use the word brother? You know, he doesn't define it here like the Pharisee. Who is my neighbor? <laughs> I mean... Is he talking is the Jewish like they did with the... They were all brothers. I, I think he means Christian brothers. I, I'm not saying we don't need to love others. But I think here his focus is, is on family love in the body of Christ. Why do you say that? Um, because I just think that's <coughs> how he's using brother. Um, you look, he, he talks about loving one another. You know, one another passages almost always are talking about fellow Christians. He uses brethren in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Um, so, I mean, I think there is a special love responsibility in the family. Think about John 13, 34 and 35. Everybody will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. So I, I think that, that idea of the special family love among Christians is really a point of emphasis. And I think it's, you know, you think about why did he, why did he put so much emphasis on we need to love one another as one of the main tests of of life and faithfulness to Christ. Well, because those false teachers had left. They hadn't shown love. They'd shown uh, disrespect and had abandoned the cause of these people. That was what I was going to ask about. You think the love ties in with what the Gnostic teachers were doing I do. or not doing? Yeah, I think they, they're separating themselves from the true brethren. It was an act of, you know, Hatred, rebelliousness, unconcern for them, and so forth. Do you think they're not sharing with the true brethren? I don't know about that. Maybe, okay. maybe not. No. 
other thoughts. Well, this next section is a real challenge to figure out what he's saying, and I've kind of gone back and forth, and now I'm a little bit back. Uh, so, 19 to 24. We'll know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart, and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments, and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is the commandment, that we believe in the, uh, in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know this. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Okay. So we're dealing with this idea of our security and confidence of our relationship with God, a big point in view of the Gnostics trying to you know, say, you guys don't really have the anointing and you guys really don't have the... The edge we do, we've got this special super-duper relationship with God. So, how do we know that we're of the truth? How do we have assurance? That's a pretty practical thing even for us, you know, because that we want to know, you know, we want to have some kind of reason to believe that, that we're, we're really okay. And, and, and he does this deal with whether your heart condemns you or not. You know, he says in 20, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. But, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Um, so, what's the contrast between if our heart condemns us and if our heart doesn't condemn us? So, what do you think about that? What, do you, what would you say he means in verse 20, if our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. What is that saying? The fact that God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. What's the point of that? It appears that maybe you know whether you're really loving somebody like in verse 18, or if it's just with the word. Yes. So, it's like, you know in your you know in your heart what you mean, and so does God. So, if God knows this, if God's greater than our heart and knows all things, is that a sort of source of comfort or concern? It's on your heart. Okay, well, he says in whatever our heart condemns us. So he's saying this is a source of comfort, I think. Okay, why would you say that? Well, I would say that because we're going to assure our hearts in whatever our heart condemns us. And then, like my version says, for God, or like, like because God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So I think he is saying it as a comfort and not as a reason to be afraid. Alright, so if your conscience condemns you, be comforted. God is greater than your heart and he'll override what your conscience says and justify you. Yeah, and God knows the people who are his. Our feelings tend to kind of fluctuate up and down sometimes. and um, But but the Lord knows if your heart is. So right. he's trying to reassure people whose heart condemns them that God knows more than they do and they're still okay. That's how I took it. Uh-huh. I think God took it the opposite way. I couldn't tell. <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it just meant both ways. Huh. I mean, maybe not. I don't know what exactly. <laughs> Is there another way to take... In, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> look at it this way. I'd like for you to see the other viewpoint. It's really hard to decide between them for several reasons. But look at the contrast between 20 and 21. In whatever our heart condemns us, or if our heart does not condemn us. Now, uh, 
if you see that as a contrast, then could it be that if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart? You're in real trouble then. You know, I mean, it's a little hard sometimes to see God knowing all things as leading to a more favorable verdict than your own conscience would lead to. You know, or that he would judge us more gently than we judge ourselves. You know, if your conscience condemns you, think about what God thinks. If you already know you've done wrong, imagine God's view of it who knows everything. So that that's one side of that possibility. Um, but the other... That's with verse 19 that we're assuring... That, yes. You've got verse 19, this should be an assurance, and you've got the general tenor of the letter that's trying to be reassuring <laughs> to these doubting Christians. You know, and, and try to give them confidence that, no, they haven't missed something, and, and all of that. Um, so, you've got some good reasons on both sides of this. Can you see both arguments? Kind of see what their point is? Yeah. I think it's a really hard thing to decide. I... I... I was on the side of those who said, you know, God's greater if your heart condemns you, imagine what God does. Then I switched over to the side of, it's a comfort and reassurance, even if your heart condemns you, don't worry about it, God God knows everything. And now I'm just slightly on the other side again. I, I just have a hard time with this God knowing everything, meaning your heart can condemn you, but God knows it'll be fine. And the contrast bothers me. So I'm taking verse 19 as saying, here's how you have assurance. If your heart condemns you, you're in trouble. But if you know that you've done what's right, then you can have confidence, and you can ask, and you can receive. And so then he says, here's your assurance. Now, if your heart condemns you, no. But if your heart doesn't, then you're good. But I can see both sides. And I do think it's a hard thing to call. So why would their heart condemn them if they're... If they are loving and more in yeah, if they're doing this with indeed and truth. I mean, what what I, is the point? Well, I think their heart condemns them because they're not. Well, then it should. Exactly. <laughs> but and then, why would there be assurance? I mean, I why think would there be another? Are you trying to ask why would anybody take it the other way? No, he's why would asking you say, why in nineteen? Yeah, uh, why would God say it's okay if they're not doing it? Yeah, I take verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him as kind of the preface to the section. And then he says, now, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things, the love of our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I think he's saying, now, if your heart condemns you, you're, you know, that's not what I'm trying to say, that's okay. But if your heart doesn't, then this is your confidence, you know, and you can trust in God. If you know you've done what's right, then trust God that you're doing fine. But if your heart didn't condemn you, you wouldn't have a lack of confidence ever, would you? And this depends on you knowing for sure that what you think is right is right. Yes. But it almost sounds like, okay, we know the truth, and you do this, and then you're assured. End of conversation. Yes. And then he goes on, but if you're not assured, or if you're, yeah, you know, it's like... Confusing. It is. Didn't I say that to begin with? <laughs> My way makes more sense. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your way again. Well, I, I, do, I do see the other way also. But the way it read to me was that um, sometimes your feelings kind of fluctuate. So even though you know that you're, you know, being a good Christian the best that you can, you don't always feel confident in that. And so it's kind of saying, like... If your heart is condemning you, like, oh no, maybe I'm not a good Christian. Well, God knows where you truly stand with Him, and so He, um, so you can take comfort in that. Is that a yeah. reasonable yeah. explanation of the other and side? It's a complete. I mean, if you look at the sentence, of course, it has several whatever those little sections set off by commas. Semicolons. Clauses. <laughs> Clauses. Clauses or parenthetical, whatever. I don't know what they're called, but anyway, we shall know this. By this, I think talking about the verse before, by what? By the fact that they're doing deed and... Loving and deed and truth. Yeah. 
So we shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. Take out the next section. For God is greater than our heart. We shall assure our heart before him because God's greater than our heart and knows all things even if our heart condemns us. And that's one sentence. Like, there's no comma separating assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. Because if it was the other way, it would be like, assure our heart before him, comma, this thing, comma, this thing. It's hard to to argue based on... It's hard to argue based on grammar. Because they didn't have all that stuff in that original. The majority view at the moment, by far, is what I think both you and your dad are saying. Now that's by far the majority of you at this point. Uh, but I'm still holding out slightly. But it is, <laughs> at the, I can see it both ways. There's, so there's an argument to be made on both sides. Uh, so that, that's just really difficult for me to uh, feel confidence that I uh, know <laughs> what it's saying. Does your heart condemn you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think so. But. Well, we do. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, God is greater. Than you. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, God is greater than your brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah. So it's it's challenging. And it, I mean, we can we can condemn our hearts unjustly. Can we not? Yes. Judging ourselves too strictly, too or mm. too leniently, or whichever way it goes. But God knows the whole bit. Mm-hmm. So is twenty-one just kind of a restating the the positive side, or and and by the way, if your heart doesn't condemn you, well, then you've got confidence, right? <laughs> right. I think under that view, yes. You know, either way, if your heart condemns you, or if your heart doesn't condemn you, you've got reasons for security. Yeah, because the first, in, in that way, the, the the first one is the assurance <laughs> in verse 19, and the second one is repeating it in 21. Mm-hmm. We have confidence, we have assurance, said in two different ways. So the question is whether that verse 20 is throwing in the opposite side of the right. equation. Right, exactly. Yeah. 20 followed by 21, I think, is the best argument for yes. the side that you're... Yes. And also the fact that God is greater than your heart is like, well, it just strikes me <laughs> as a better argument for saying, well, I mean, you condemn yourself. Imagine what God will do. I don't know if that's as strong because you can err on either side, like Sarah was saying. But I definitely see what you're saying. Yeah, it just strikes you as a strange way to say, "Oh, God's greater than your heart, so He knows you're fine, even though you don't think you." Do. <laughs> I don't know. That just Except bugs me. Except for the fact that He's trying to give them confidence, so what leads you to believe they don't have confidence? And that is a good argument on that side. And and it talks about at the beginning of verse nineteen, we will know by this by the love that we do in deed and truth I think probably so I'm I'm in agreement that that's probably what he's saying the by this is ambiguous sometimes it goes backwards sometimes it goes forward but I'm okay with the idea he's talking about what he's just said so we can be doing the the right deeds and such and still our hearts can condemn us but God says no you are doing what you need to be doing. Yeah, I would Yeah. That's how that argument would sort of go. So one unambiguous way to gain confidence then is to do the deeds of love for your brother. Sure. And maybe then you don't have to have so so much uh, ambiguity in your own mind. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, he's given some pretty simple tests here. You know, if you love your brother, you're in the lo- you're in life. You, you live, and uh, so yeah, this it's just difficult. Look at twenty two. We under we agree on this. If our heart does not condemn us, we have constant confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. So. You know, we know if we're doing God's will, God will listen to our prayers and answer them. Um, you know, 
when you're really pleasing God, what you want is what God wants. What God wants is what you want. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Your, your, your will is in line with God's will, and so you can be confident that he'll give you requests because they'll be in line with what he wants for you. Are we using the heart as like an illustration of conscience here? I think so. Okay, because that's where I think I'm lost. Because we come in with the terminology <laughs> heart before that, verse 17, but whoever has the will to and sees his brother in need and closes his conscience against him, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. So if it's closes his heart, as in his true inner being, who he who he really is, and not just on the outside, the hypocritical side, but who you really are, like we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, is not with our conscience and our mind. So if, we, if you take it from that viewpoint of what heart is meaning, then if then if our heart condemns us, if who we really are is not like what our outside is, like it was saying in verse eighteen, you need not be just in word but in deed. So if our heart condemns us, if who we really are condemns us, then God's greater than our hearts, and it's going to condemn us even more. But then if your heart doesn't condemn you, if who you really are doesn't condemn you, then um, and then you have confidence, because you, you love God with all your heart, and you love your brother with your heart. Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. You're saying that the heart is not the conscience, the heart is really a reflection of who you, what your life is really like. And therefore, that that would mean my view had to be correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to argue with you. <laughs> His view. Well, yeah, yeah, you're on my side, so hey. <laughs> I, I'm really, I'm closely divided on this one. And it's just, wow, it's tough. Um, I, I think we can see some good in both views. It's, I mean, both views can are, are ultimately true. That's helpful. <laughs> you know, so... Um, so talk about 22 a little bit, because you come across these verses that on the surface it sounds like, everything I ask for, God is going to give me. So, new puppy, here I go. That's female logic. <laughs> Those quantum leaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... <laughs> But, but that's how, like, that's how it kind of naturally reads at first glance. Now, obviously that's not true, and I think the best example of that is Jesus' prayers were not all answered by God saying, okay, I'm going to give you whatever you want. Um, and when he prayed in the garden, for instance, God didn't say, okay, I'll let the cup pass from you. Um, so is the right way to look at that, or maybe one of the right ways to look at that, um, that we know God answers our prayers if we're doing His will, like you said? Are there other things to think about along with that? Well, I think most of all, the person who's doing God's will and is concerned about what the Lord wants will be asking for things that the Lord wants. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll have a heart for the Lord, we'll have a desire to follow the Lord. Um, I think Jesus' prayer was answered, affirmatively, because He said... Your will be done, not mine. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, that's what he wanted, and okay. so that I think, in that sense, yes, uh, and I think that's the way somebody is who who really uh, seeks the Lord. Um, we we want, don't want the Lord to do something against His will, mm -hmm. but but when we're following the Lord, we wouldn't ask for something against His will normally. We ask for a lot of things that we don't know what his will is. You know, yeah, maybe so. Maybe we should ask for more stuff that we do know what his will is. <laughs> but I think we need to ask him for anything. Like, that... Like, we asked him for a lot of things about being healed or whatever, and I think that's all right. And so we don't know what his will is in that, though, so... So when we don't know what his will is, we ask that his will be done. When we know what his will is, we ask what for what his will is. Right. That's something to think <laughs> about. <laughs> you think about it that way. But we still ask for, like Jesus did, I would say. He said, your will be done. But he still asked for one particular thing to happen more than the other. Well, what he asked for more than the other was for God's will to be done. Mm 
Right, but he was saying, let this cut pass for me. He was not asking, let me go through this. Like, he was yes. asking, you know what I'm saying? Yes, so, I do. I mean, we still ask for things one way or another, and we still say that your will be done, but we do make requests and don't. But, know. I mean, you know, I, this may be belaboring a dead horse, but... Uh-huh. I don't know if you can relate to a dead one or not. You can labor out of a dead one. But, uh, you know, would you want God to answer your request positively if it wasn't his will? No. But Absolutely I not. People, I hear people who take it to be like, well, I have to really believe that God's going to heal me because he said, you know, if you believe, he'll give you what you asked for and everything. And so, like, they take it and think that, well, if I don't get it, it's because I didn't believe. And and that's baloney, as far as I'm concerned. Well, right, <laughs> people actually think that. You're right. <laughs> because of verses It's not like you these. have to somehow conjure up enough faith that you're sure, you know, enough <laughs> confidence, you're sure that's what God wants to do. Right. That's well, definitely. I mean, I agree with you, but... I figured you did. <laughs> <laughs> so why are you arguing with me? <laughs> because it's a common belief. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. I think it is. And I think for uh, someone who really trusts the Lord, we really don't want our will to be done for God's. We are really concerned to make sure God understands, mm-hmm. please don't do this if it's not what you think is best. Mm-hmm. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Yes. Psalm thirty-seven four. Yes. That whole, I remember discussing that once, and it was that, yeah, that you get the desires of your heart, but once you've delighted yourself in the Lord, your desire is for the Lord. I think that's the point. Yes. So I mean, an example would be Paul asking for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. Yes. He asked. Yes. It's not wrong to ask. Right. He didn't know what the will was, but he said, hey, right. can you remove this? Yes. <laughs> and God said, no. <clears throat> That's right. God said, it. my grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> but okay. he also he said, said, no, no. 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 <laughs> it was definitely no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when God got through explaining it to Paul, did Paul want him to remove the thorn anyway? Probably. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> he got every answer. <laughs> I don't know. I think yes, he probably felt like the par- paralytic let down on the cop. You know? <laughs> he said, forgive it's like, thanks. He said, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So I think God's answer convinced Paul that what he really wanted was to have these thorns. It convinced Paul that he was content with the it. It doesn't mean he I'm wanted not sure it. That means he still wanted the thorn. I think it does. There's a difference between I think there's accepting. a difference between accepting God's will, but on a physical level, he didn't want the thorn in the flesh. Yeah, well, I don't think it takes away. These. So he grabbed a sword, and chopped off his foot. Wow, that hurt. <laughs> I don't think Paul suddenly changed physically what he wanted. I do. But there's a he difference between being content and boasting it. He said, I boast in it. This is something that's great. And so you would want something that's great. That yeah, I think he really so changed content. his whole view of these things. You know, and he, said, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly. Therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think he really came to see this is the way. This is what he wants. You know, I, I, I think, and I think that's exactly what we do. I think we come to want what God wants. And, and and that may be a process, that may be a maturing thing, but I don't see a mature Christian saying, 
it's a bummer this is what God wants because I sure don't like it this way. I'll accept it. You know, okay. Yeah, you wouldn't have that attitude. That's not really accepting it. Well, I think you don't have that attitude not just because you're trying to have a good attitude toward God. I think you don't have that attitude because you really believe, you know, God is doing the right thing here. This is the best thing for me. I think Paul just became convinced. Well, this is the way. Glad God showed me that. You know, I don't, I think Paul came to the point where if he could have taken the thorn out of his flesh, he wouldn't have. Because he wanted God's power to be in him. He saw there is real genius in what God is doing. I think that's our goal. Is to get where, you know, we really, we really want God to do his will. Because we know that is so much better for us. I mean, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, maybe like, You've got a ball player, you know, who's really motivated to win. And he implicitly trusts the coach. And he really, really wants to shoot that ball. And the coach says, no. You know, John needs to shoot that ball. And if he really trusts the coach and he really wants to win, <coughs> he changes his will. He changes his desire. Hey, coach knows what's best. Coach wins all the time. I, wanna, I want John to have that ball. Because I really trust that what that coach is saying is the best thing for our team, and what I want is our team to win. I think we get to the point where we trust God so much that we want what he wants. I think that's part of the background to these kinds of things, is that we really have a will to want God's will to be done. And not just because it's like, yeah, I've got to say that. Okay, God, your will be done. I think it's, man, I, I really think, I mean, I've talk, said this before, but honestly, if, if, if I didn't think God would veto my requests if it wasn't as well, I'd be afraid to ask for anything. How do I know what's best? I really do want God's will to be done. I don't know. Maybe that's... to ask three times? No. I think persistence in prayer is appropriate. So that means that after he was told no once, he should want God's will and shouldn't have asked the second time. I assume he was told no after the three. Like he didn't get an answer after the first two. Right. It's all things to think about, is it not? And I wonder, what was he... <laughs> was he physically told or was that his conclusion? Are we told in the same possible in the same way? I would say he was physically told, no we're not. That's what I would say. <laughs> that does make it a little more complicated for us. <laughs> <laughs> so now you got to throw that in there. Gold star from the deep. <laughs> it does. In your opinion then, you know, Paul asked two times and didn't get an answer. So how many times, you know what I'm saying, is three the limit that you can ask? I don't think so. No, I mean, I think the parable of the uh, importunate widow in uh, Luke 18. What, what do we call it? <laughs> the persistent widow. Persistent widow. <laughs> 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 we don't know those big words. Was that Portuguese? <laughs> kind of, I don't know what it was. It was the only word I could think of at the moment. I couldn't figure out how to say it in English. <laughs> Basically the way you say it. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but, but, so I think that's saying keep... But by your reasoning, that doesn't make sense to me because you should accept the answer was no. So no. being so persistent means you're not accepting and wanting God's will to be done. Uh, I don't think so. So how do you know when to stop? You may not, but you know if it doesn't happen, it's God's will and that's what you want. I agree with Gary more than the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Where did that come from? <laughs> Although maybe not 100%. <laughs> <laughs> you can forget anything in the will. <laughs> I was just going to say that um, when I think about Paul's thorn in the flesh, I always think of it as, a, as that Paul recognized that it was a blessing that he would have that reliance on God, that that was something that he had that God wasn't going to get rid of, and he looked at it and said... 
God's power, I, I realized God's power. And I've kind of seen this in my own life when I was younger and just started college. I had someone make a comment to me that they were glad. I can't remember the word that they said that, that I had had this back injury when I was a kid because it slowed me down. And they thought that I would be unstoppable because with this back injury, like I couldn't sit long, as long <laughs> and like school is harder for me and different things. And it really struck me as odd. Like at first I was kind of offended because I was like, why would you say that to somebody? But then it kind of, I thought about it and I was like, you know, I, I see kind of, at least I imagine where Paul's coming from, where you could see a certain kind of suffering or something that would be that physical reminder of God, who God really was and that, that power and who your, your place was. And I was like, you know, you're kind of right. I think if I had had always faced good health, and I, if I had gone on that path, you know, I was raised in a good family, I, I never struggled for money, I, I got a good education, I had money to pay for school, you know, all these different things, and I was like, you know, I, I needed that, and that was something that I was really thankful for, that I, that I had that, that kept me in, in check. Or and I think that is what may end up happening us is that we may come to points where we change our view of what is best. Um, I do that even when I look at other people. There are times when I have thought I would like for God to get somebody out of a bad situation. Then I see them really growing in that situation. I change my mind mm -hmm. and I think, thank you God that you didn't get them out of that. I see how much that helped them. Uh, sometimes we may see that in ourselves, and we may come. We may come to be a Joseph who says, "You know, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good." It may take some time to get that perspective. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot of ways to look at all this. I'm not sure how we got quite into all of that. But, um, Mindy was asking for a puppy. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, but I know how to get out of it. Uh, verse 23 says, this is his commandment. So, you know, we, he, because we keep his commandments, so what is his commandment? And his commandment is that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he commanded us. Uh, he kind of unites those three um these three basic points here, obedience, love, and belief, in this one verse. You know, it doesn't just matter what we do, it also matters what we believe. That's different from what a lot of people think. A lot of people would say, as long as you do what's right, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your faith is. Yes, it does. You know, doing what's right includes <laughs> believing in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and loving one another. That's also a matter of what he commanded. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So God abides in us in 324 if we keep his commandments. Look at 412. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. So God abides in us in 324 if we keep his commandments, and 412 if we love one another. Look at 415. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So God will abide in us for those three points. We keep his commandments, we love one another, and we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Those are the three basic things that make God abide in us. Or as he says at the end of this, we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given to us. Just when you expect John to bring things to a nice, tidy conclusion, he adds something that takes him quite in a farther direction. You know, he does that all the time. So he brings in this new unexpected theme. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. And uh, God's giving the Spirit is a means of, of understanding that he abides in us. Um... Perhaps we ought to think of that in terms of, of even what the scriptures teach about the Spirit abiding in us and blessing us and empowering us and so forth. So, basically, you know, what God expects are the three basic things. Obedience, 
belief, and love. He's going to put them in all different orders and he relates them and all intertwines them in all those different ways. But if you want God to abide in you and you to abide in God, those are the three things you're going to have to do. That's chapter three. Thoughts, comments, questions, whatever. It's a little uh, almost funny the you know, those that say you just have to have faith or you just have to believe only. And here it's one of the commandments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you have to keep the commandments? No, you just have to believe. Well, believing is one of the commandments. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah, it, it, that's a kind of a way to look at that that people would often not expect. You've also got that in John 6.29 when they said what must we do that we may work the works of God Jesus answered and said to them this is the work of God that you believe in him who who has sent you want to work the works of God believe in Jesus so yeah there's more interconnection between what we do and what we believe than we think there is other things on chapter 3 I heard someone say to me that, like, because he says the wording, this is his commandment, as if, like, this is the only commandment, like, you just have to believe and and love one another. And I didn't know how to answer that because I thought that was illogical. But (laughs) This is a commandment. It doesn't say this is his only commandment. Well, it is a commandment. It's actually like about a million things. You know, by this, you know, know, that is not, like, the only commandment thing that that could be true about you know that's exactly right yes that's just what he says things i think that sometimes people throw common sense out the window just because they're talking about the bible like in no <laughs> other situation would you assume like x but because we're having a religious <coughs> discussion suddenly like common sense doesn't apply yeah good point <clears throat> and so think about what you had Back in chapter 2, he was really emphasizing the need to love one another. But then he said in 2.15, do not love the world. You know, here, he's commanding us to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. But in, and, and even talking about the spirit he's giving us, given us. But then he says in 4.1, beloved, do not believe every spirit. So, love, but don't love the world. Believe, but don't believe every spirit. He's given us the spirit, but there's other spirits out there too that you shouldn't listen to and follow. And so, he's going to counteract some things in this next section, which I'm not going to start tonight. But uh, good to uh, be able to uh, study what we did. And uh, probably, well, I think certainly we'll work on next week for this. For